Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado Magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado Magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Jeff Evenson. He's a business coach, investor, and acquisition entrepreneur. Thank you for being on the show today, man. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Cool. So I always like to start off with kind of origin story, man. I'm prior military. I see that you've actually got some training in the in that realm. Let's just yeah. kind of talk about you, how did you get how did you get your start into the entrepreneurialism, and then kind of how did you end up with this acquisition entrepreneur and helping other acquisition entrepreneurs? That's great. Thanks for that. My the short version of my story: I grew up in St. Louis, and I stumbled into a place called West Point, United States Military Academy, and graduated from there in 1990. Spent a short time in the Army as an engineer officer. Exited the Army and went to grad school and learned all about these things that I had never heard anything about because they don't teach you in the military about finance and buying businesses and that sort of thing. Then I spent about 10 years in private business, kind of on the investment side. I did some equity trading and some investment management and that sort of thing. Landed in a, after a long while, landed in a department within a big multinational company that was doing mergers acquisitions across a bunch of private businesses. And I found that really fascinating because now I had this stuff that I learned about and realized that, oh, financial statements actually get used to operate businesses. And businesses can be bought and sold and that sort of thing. So it was kind of a, a new thing. At the same time, my, my wife at the time was interested in buying a business or becoming a business owner. And she was working for, of all things, given my hairline and your hairline, a hair salon. So we actually bought a hair salon in 2008, in May of 2008. It was a pretty big operation doing about almost $4 million in sales and had about 60 some odd employees. So it was a pretty big operation. Here I found myself in the in a high-end luxury business in uh, May of 2008, and if anybody knows what happened a few months later, the world started to implode and there wasn't as much disposable income around and that sort of thing. Here I was trying to figure out how to navigate tough times in a high-end business during a recession. We bought the business in 2008. We added another location in 2011, grew throughout that whole time, which is pretty amazing, and then ultimately bought another small business that was a $500,000 or $600,000 manufacturer that was part of our supply chain. And ultimately I exited those companies, all three of those companies in 2018 through a divorce, which by the way, is a way to divorce, to exit a business. Maybe not the one that I'd recommend to everybody, but a way. And then on the back of that, a friend of mine that I went to West Point with reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm looking to run this company. There's a guy who's trying to sell a business and he's got a buyer out of, from another state, but they want somebody to run it locally. Would you come and help me run it? And I thought, yeah, it sounds great. I'm in a transition point anyway. 
And he said, but I haven't heard from the buyer in about a month, so I don't know what to do here. And I said, tell him we'll buy it. And he kind of looked at me apoplectic and like, hey, I don't know how to do that. Would we be able to buy the company? I said, sure. It's no problem. If the company cash flows, we can buy the company. Pivoted from the hair salon business into a precision machine shop, which by the way, they have nothing to do with each other. They're pretty similar, right? (laughs) (laughs) Other than the fact that they have humans working there, that's about it. We bought that company in May of 2019, and and I helped operate that business for about 18 months. I exited the business in in December of 2020. Since then, I've been coaching business owners because I feel like that I have the experience of having acquired ongoing businesses and then jumping in there and actually operating those businesses. And then on top of that, I've been helping um, folks who are looking to acquire companies because I've got that experience having done it a handful of times can help people navigate some of the potholes that I felt like I was navigating during that time. Yeah, it's been exciting. And I, and I think I told you before we got on the call that I'm on a personal quest now to help other people build a billion dollars of generational wealth in the next 25 years. I don't need to help 6,000 people do that. I just need to help six. And if I can keep helping six people every year, I think we can achieve our goal. That's awesome. And there's a plethora, just an enormous amount of those of businesses that need to change hands or yeah, they're going to go don't. away, right? We, Absolutely. They have nicknames for it. It's to the point where they call it the silver tsunami, right? It's right. the... Ten, um, to the ten trillion dollar opportunity, right? I mean, yeah, ten trillion a, dollars a, worth a, of a book written about it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the if you really look at the, I mean, it's a problem that must be solved. If you look at it, it's a large portion of this nation's GDP, right? No question. I mean, there's, you know, the the numbers I've seen are over fifty percent of GDP, and over fifty percent of the employers are these small businesses that are held by held privately. And to me, that's an opportunity. I think anywhere from, depending on your, what you read from 30 to 50% of those companies are owned by baby boomers mm-hmm. who are in their seventies to nineties. And, mm-hmm. and frankly, those folks are either going to sell their businesses or they're going to turn off the lights. And that's a challenge. And it's, it's sad. I actually have run across a few. There's one in our little hometown there where it was electrical, commercial electrical. They had 15, 20 trucks and it was one of the bigger commercial electrical around and all of a sudden I get the word that like I would drive by it to drop my wife off to work because we carpooled a lot. We lived 20 miles from the office. I mean, from the, mm-hmm. from where she worked, it just made sense. And one day I noticed there's nobody going in and out. Like this was a hustling, bustling huh. place. So I did a little research on it and the husband passed away and uh-huh. nobody had check signing authority. So they couldn't cut payroll. They couldn't do everything. And um, yeah. it's just, an, it eventually went under and everything I got had to go auction off because by the time they, got court authority to sign stuff and do everything, it was, those customers had to go somewhere else, right? It was yeah, just too totally damaged. crazy, right? Yeah, I, I talked to a commercial real estate agent once who told me that he's run into more than one situation where he's selling a building and he kind of walks in and there's people in the building and he's like, what's going to happen with these guys? And building owner is also the business owner. He's like, oh, I'm just going to shut the business down. I'm like, what? I said, well, if you ever find that situation again, call me because I'll figure out how to buy that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's going to, it's happening already and it's going to happen a lot more in the future. There's just, uh, even with the listed businesses, brokers, what do they say? Less than 20% of all businesses that are ever right. listed even get sold. And a lot of it has to do with, there's a very low bar <laughs> of entry to be a business broker. A state I just yeah. moved from does, doesn't even have a licensing requirement whatsoever. A, state well, of, a lot uh, of states don't. 
Yeah, I would say, I think Florida might be the only one that I know of that does. Most states don't. And the situation is that there are 6,000 business brokers in the country. And there, I live in Missouri. There are 32,000 real estate brokers in Missouri alone. So talk about an underserved community. And I'm, I happen to be, I have joined up as a business advisor slash broker, have the ability to help our office here sell businesses. And to me, we all know it, that the bar is very low on entering that space. If you got a pulse and can understand the idea of buying and selling and get some contracts signed, you can sell a business. So it's scary. Um, um, yeah. I'm in California and all they like, well, we have a licensing requirement. I looked into it and it's like, oh, you have to be a real estate broker for two years. I mean, you have to, <laughs> right. it, like, as, what is it? As if that helps you. <laughs> exactly. Get it if there's real estate attached to the business. That makes sense. Sure. That you have to have a real estate broker involved. But right. there are clearly two distinctly different traits and skill sets and right. in clientele. No doubt. One does all. not equal the other. No, it's shocking to me that, that it's in such an underserved space. And there's, we all know, as anybody who's done any searching knows, there's no MLS for businesses. There's no way to, to see what's the entire universe of businesses that are for sale. And that makes it very challenging to get good price discovery and all the things that come with that. Yeah, very challenging. It's intriguing that there's not, right? You, you've got a few websites that are pretty dominant inside of that, but other than that, yeah. there's nothing, right? You've got a lot of these small businesses, $5 million and below, end up you know, using these SBA loans, and mm -hmm. their current practices don't support what's really going on in the community. If you look at what happens in every level above an SBA loan, it's rarely 100% purchase, rarely. I'm getting rumors from the, I'm trying to get the, the head of the SBA and the head of SCORE on the show because I'm going to ask oh, them really? how they're planning to do with this. So I've been reaching out to them and working with their media department to put them on here. But uh, the question is, is like, how are we going to deal with this huge wave? Because mm -hmm. their current practices don't work and won't scale to work. Even if they had the money to loan everybody that wanted, one, one of, wanted one of these, the mathematics don't work out if you're a mathematic type person because how long mm -hmm. they take to close and the hoops they make people jump through, right? And the risk that the owner has to take on when it's always 100%. So I'm hearing rumors right now that in 2023, they're going to make it either 80 or 90%. You can actually do partial right. acquisitions. That'd be really interesting. The challenge, of course, Ron, is that they, without question, that opportunity exists and that would be great and it would probably make open up the aperture for more deals. But the challenge is that someone's going to take advantage of that. And someone's going to be, it's going to, it's going to do something nefarious with that. Just like we saw with PPP, just like we saw with idle, all the stuff that happens. And that's why they create those rules so that people aren't just lining their pockets with SBA government funds and are guaranteed SBA loans. And so, yeah, it's a problem that needs to be solved, but at the same time, I can empathize a little bit with the SBA that it's a trick box, right? Like they, they have to be worried about how do we do this without people grossly taking advantage of it. Although we know the stories that'll be told will only be the 3% of them that are people taking advantage of it. Right. So it's like, yeah. It's interesting that I actually have, I would call him a friend. I mean, somebody I went through training with and was friends with who thought he was being sly, took advantage of that PPP loan. He's, he's in minimal security prison right now for 18 months. I didn't know be, what man. he was up to Sorry. at the time, but I know he should. And I'm just saying it happens. And yeah. he didn't, in his own mind, he didn't think what he was doing was wrong, but it was 100%, right? 
and yeah. he when he when it kind of clicked it was wrong he turned himself in i mean they long story short he turned himself in and owned up to it and basically pled guilty and t- is doing his time but uh, it's gonna happen and that's the reason a lot of these rules change and in the real estate space it was really i've come from real estate world it became really the hot thing to do what's called wholesaling to put a house under contract you had no way to close and then to sell it to another investor i was saying over and over again that's just a bad business model if you don't have the ability to close you don't have the money you don't have the intelligence or you bid wrong or whatever these what happened was is new guys would get into the space they would overbid on something just because they didn't know how to negotiate they didn't know it was a bad price and then they would lock it up in contract for 90 days and hurt the homeowner and right. I was like, you're one senator's son or daughter. You hurt, you're you one step from hurting somebody powerful to having all the laws change and to put rules and laws up that'll stop this when it is a useful utility for people who legitimately know what to do, right? Correct. Correct. And, it, and yeah. it happens. Like Oklahoma was where, that, where I was at the time. I'm in California now. But in Oklahoma, they just passed laws. You have to be a broker to, to do that. You actually have to have a broker's license. A broker has mm-hmm. to be involved even in wholesale deals. And a lot of states are doing that now. Same thing's going to happen here. It will happen is they'll open up the gates, they'll change it, and then they'll make laws to make it criminally punishable if you get caught <laughs> yeah. Doing, yeah. doing something shady. And it's sad that people take advantage of it. Yeah, um, no doubt at all. I've been a SBA lender or a borrower, rather. All the deals, well, not all the deals, but many of the deals that I did involved SBA loans. I had other SBA loans for new equipment and for our, for a new location when we built the second salon. I, I understand, I feel like I understand really reasonably well the SBA process. I find it to be a great facility. You've got to find a good lender that you can build a relationship with. I'm, I always tell people <laughs> when I'm talking banking with people, I always say, go find the list of SBA lenders in your market, the top, mm-hmm. top 10, top 100, whatever it is. Start at the top of the list and start moving down until you haven't heard of the bank. When you get to that one, that's the one you want to go talk to because <laughs> they're doing decent volume and, they, and they're small enough that they want to build a relationship with you individually. Because if you good, talk good to idea. the big guys, yeah, if you talk to the big guys, they can say that they're going to build a relationship with you and then they transfer the, the loan officer to another state or city right. or whatever. And now all of a sudden you're just loan number 17464 and right. holy cow, now I'm trying to fight that one. In my mind, the way that SBA facilitates some of the wave that's coming is threefold. And I'm going to run this past you because I want to know your opinion because you've been on the other side of it. One, step one, I think they have to shorten the cycle, right, on how long it takes to get approved. So they got to streamline their processes, make it really known and clear. And the banks have to participate in that because the banks add their own requirements on top of the SBA. So that Mm -hmm. needs to be very clear and very understandable in less than 60 days. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's step one. Step two, I think they need to either double or triple the limit. There is currently, if you look at where there's a gap, right? The private equity buys a lot of these companies and will buy a company, but they typically don't go below that 25. Some of them now are getting down to 10 million. Anything mm-hmm. below 10 million purchase price is, is just really small for what they got to do. Most of them won't play between below the $25 million mark. I was just talking to one a few months ago and he's like, they don't touch anything below 50 million. Right. Right. So it depends on the industry. So there's a gap in some of these industries. The gap is the PE, which is the next purchase level. If you can't get if you can't sell through SBA, it goes from five million to you have to get up to 50 million. So if you're if you're Mm -hmm. a company that should sell for 15 million, 
now it's all private private lenders and there's ways to get it done but it's just it's not it's a lot harder for them so i think yeah. if the sba would double it or even triple it go to 15 million dollar max yeah. purchase with some other requirements and other stuff of course and then the last one is what i think they're going to do is start a, uh, putting some rules around where you don't have to do 100% buyout right, yeah, right. you can right. buy 70% or or more of a company with these requirements meaning that the and they may just say that the 30% is non-participant meaning that the previous owner has no say in the matter right yeah and yeah that, even that, that would, would make yeah that would make sense and it would it would still I, work I, I think you're totally right. I find all those interesting, and those are probably the three pieces of the puzzle. The one part, when you talk about the shortening the cycle, the application cycle, I think what I'll say is that maybe it's because I'm in my mid-50s, I'm a jaded jerk about the government, right? Like, I, I'm mm -hmm. not convinced that they're able to do anything efficiently, but I will <laughs> say that the PPP program was the right program for the right people at the right time and delivered as efficiently as I can even imagine it could have ever been delivered. And so as a person who took PPP loans, I was just stunned that it was actually delivered the way that it was and it was targeted the right at the right people and everything else. I was just, and it was oversaw, overseen by the SBA. So in my eyes, you've now had a fire drill, right? That the SBA had to learn how to do stuff fast. I'm gonna try not to curse on your show. <laughs> I have the adult they, thing turned on. You can say anything you want to say. <laughs> but they, they had to they had to learn how to do stuff fast. And so they did that very well during PPP. So my so I have a, a hope, I guess, that at some point they figure that out and now they've now they can put that into exercise with tightening up the uh, cycle, the turnaround cycle for SBA loans. It's without question, even the most efficient banks are going to do them in forty five days. Most of them are going to take 60 to 90 and those, and the bankers will tell you that and say, Hey, just plan on it being 60 to 90. As far as raising the limits, I think that'd be genius as well. If you go back to what's the, fa the loan failure rate in the SBA, it's about two and a half percent, less than three. And those loan, the 7A program is designed for business acquisition. In my eyes, that's a pretty damn successful program. And I'm not saying that I'm not suggesting that we want to like make that number closer to 25% failure rate, but you can afford a little bit more failure rate, right? If you, so if you were able to up that limit, you may stumble into some failures, but I think on balance, you're going to benefit the challenge that we have out there with these companies that are coming for sale. And yeah, I agree that having access to 10 or 15 million plugs that gap because nobody's a machine shop business that, that we bought was a $12 million acquisition. And Part of that was SBA, but obviously the balance of it couldn't be, right? It'd be creative. And how do we plug that, that piece? And PE wasn't interested at 12 million. Right. Because it's small potatoes, right? So now you've got some way to get it done privately. And that's where negotiations and seller financing and being cute about the deal is the way to get it done. And fortunately we were able to do that, but there was no sort of conventional SBA way to, to get that whole deal, take that whole deal down. So that was challenging. <clears throat> I would um, venture to say that if they increased it, even if they increased it all the way up to 25 million, which would be a five X over now, I would think that the failure rate would potentially go down in the respect that at $25 million revenue and decent profit margin, if you met all the criteria and all the due diligence and everything, 
you're no longer having to buy businesses where the buyer has to be the sole operator right. and the sole knowledge, right? You buy a $5 million business, often that operator better know his stuff because he can't really plug in somebody else to do his job. You buy a $25 million business and you realize that I'm not the right CEO from this. It's, it's fairly affordable to buy it, to hire a CEO in place. Mm -hmm. Right. I think the success rate would either stay the same or potentially go up, especially if the SBA says, look, if your business, it, like a lot of business loans, if you look at a lot of the way commercial business loans work and stuff, they're reevaluated every three years. Right. Sure. You, they can sure. call your note due <laughs> if yep. you're not performing. Yep. If the SBA did something similar inside of like, look, anything over five billion, five million dollars loan or anything over ten million dollars loan, you have to meet certain success criteria or you have mm -hmm. the right to, to tell you to do something different. And that right. respect that if you're not meet, meeting the economic standards within your industry, right? The industry average is growing 15% per year over year, 5% over year a year, and you're declining bad, mm -hmm. then look, we're gonna say, we're gonna call your note due unless you replace yourself as a CEO. And I, or, I think- or, or refinance conventionally or something like that. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting space. I've got a, a colleague that I'm partners with in my business coaching space. He's a banker and he spent 35 years in the space. He was my lender in my SBA loans, mm -hmm. loan world. I'd love to bounce that off of him and just see what his thoughts were there. Cause he can tell you that his bank kind mm -hmm. of thrived when they got a million dollar to a million and a half dollar loan. Mm -hmm. Those were home runs for them. And he said that the larger ones, which I took down at least one of those were a little more troubling for him because there was a lot more due diligence and there's a lot more worry and there's who's, who are we lending to and all the other stuff. And then the super small ones were terrible because they were the same amount of work as the million and a half dollar loan, but they, the big for them wasn't there. Like they would sell off the loan. They still wouldn't get, they wouldn't get a big pickup on those and it was still the same amount of work. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And the other thing I didn't think about, but it just came to my head right now, is currently the SBA insures, what is it, 70 or 75%? 75% of the loan. It could be the size, like, look, we'll do 75% of loans up to 5 million, 70% at 5 to 10, and 60% between 10 and 25. It's up to yeah, the right. banks to decide whether or not they want to work with you. And that now that would open up to bankers like your guy where he says, my million dollar loans are home runs and my... It's a little risky for me to go a $12 million loan. If the bank, if the SBA said, well, we'll insure 60% of a $12 million loan. Now you just really reduce the risk profile for the banks and they'd be more interested in, in looking at those avenues. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. I mean, I, I think it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant conversation. It does solve that challenge that we face of these companies that are on, that are going to sell or going to close yeah. and are frankly, part of the, whether it's the industrial complex or whatever they're, they're part of right now, most of them are old school manufacturing type companies that are owned by that boomer generation. And so I think that's where the challenge is that a lot of the old school manufacturing stuff either dies on the vine or has to get sold. And how do we get that? How do we put it in a position, the best position to sell those, to put new business owners in a great position to be successful? Right, right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the acquisition process. You help buyers find businesses and stuff. What do you think? Let's talk about that process. I know that you've done a few yourself. What do you think is the key in the early stages of working with these business owners? The guy's got a manufacturing yeah. plan. He's reaching retirement age. He doesn't want to know what he's going to do next. You have that initial first call. What is your objective in that first phase? Yeah, it's great. Really, I think anybody who has a first call, I, it's funny, I got a call from somebody recently who 
hey, I'm going to go see this seller and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to meet her for the first time, but I'm going to get three years of tax returns from her and the last three years financials. And I'm like, well, good luck with that. You'll never talk to her again because <laughs> that's pretty aggressive. Like your first conversation, early stage conversations, it's all about building rapport, right? Like you've got to, you got, I always use it. I don't know if I made up this phrase or I stole it from somebody else, but it's free to any, for anybody to use. People don't buy or people don't sell their companies to assholes. If you, <laughs> yep. come, if you come in and your guns are blazing and you're, hey, I need to get this before I even take a look at your company, there is such an, an amazing part of that of the process is trust and rapport and just psychology of the deal, right? I think we overlook that sometimes in our when you find these guys who are doing maybe searcher search funds or they're they're out there. They, hey, I learned this in grad school. I'm going to go buy a company. Like, okay, great. Take a breath because you're going to have to learn how to talk to humans and really negotiate with them and understand better. When you go into a conversation but with a business owner, all you're doing is you're going in to find out, find their story, learn more about their story, and let them wax poetic all day long about how they started this company from their garage, and now they've turned it into this, and this is, and let them tell stories, let them do whatever they want to do, but talk about how they got into the business and their passion for the business. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to create an image where they see you as a potential them from 20 years ago. Okay. This guy, this guy or gal could be somebody who could actually take this to the next place. And so I think we sometimes get it get ahead of ourselves and we just try and like execute the stuff that we're supposed to do when we buy a company because we know the process looks like first I do this and I drop an LOI and then I go in and I do due diligence and blah, blah, blah. Like, great, but you're never going to get to an LOI if you don't build rapport with that seller to start with. I, that's a big challenge to start with. I think that's why a lot of business brokers fail. If you reach out to no, a business totally. broker who has a business for sale, first thing he's going to do before he wants anything, he wants a proof of funds, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm interested in. You want me to show you my financials. Right. And I see it. Exactly. And it really bugs me a little bit because like, I'm not, I'm, okay, I, we're playing poker. I'm about to show you my hand. No, I'm right. not showing you my hand. Let, exactly. I want, so it, it's, and I get there because I get what they're trying to do because they get a lot of people that are kicking tires, but right. it doesn't work. Right? right. In the same way. So, and they set you up where you don't have that rapport. In my mind, there's three conversations I want to have before I see anybody's financials. First one is kind of tell me how you started this. Tell me what you built. Tell me mm -hmm. why you built it. I want to know the story, right? I want to be bought in on your vision of where you came from and why you built this. The next one is I want to know where do you see it going? Where do you, what do you want to see happen with this company? after you're gone because that's important yep. to these guys what do you sure. want to see happen when you're gone and then i also want to know and this is just recently in the last probably 12 months or so or eight, eight or nine months is what do you want to do next yep. because well, a lot of times these deals fail because they get to the closing table and they don't know what they're going to do next they get nervous this is all they're done all they've done for years and their identity is so wrapped around it yep. they don't i've even had them honestly tell me there's a guy i really like run into him a few times he was almost an investor i say almost he was too crude of a, he made too stiff of an offer, but he was going to be one of the investors in my real estate firm, like loaning me money to buy houses. Anyway, when I asked him if you're ready, like, hey, let's do this. His wife wants him to sell it. His friends are telling him it's time. He's mm -hmm. 70 something, just had a stint put in his neck to avoid a stroke. And he's like, mm -hmm. I don't want to sell. All my friends that have sold their businesses died within a few years. I'm not ready to Oh die. my gosh. But he, that's in his yeah. mind. He's like, I sell point, this, this, this is all I do. So that's, that's one right. of the... And, 
and having a couple of those conversations, you realize if they don't have a very active plan and really excited about what's next, you could right. lose the deal at the end and you're not doing them any favor, right? Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent about the psychology of the deal. Like if you think about it, you and I are in a room, you're the seller, I'm the buyer. Mm -hmm. You don't trust me. You're scared. You don't know what's next. You're skeptical. You think I'm trying to lowball you. All those things. So it's all this trust stuff. And I look at and I look at you and I'm like, this guy's telling me that next year is going to be the best year ever. He's telling me that there's no problems in the company. It's really well run. I know I'm going to open, I'm going to buy it. And it's going to be a complete mess, whatever. <laughs> so it's this weird like combination of two people who have no trust. Right. And so the psychology of it to, to a build that rapport, I always, uh, people talk about time kills all deals, right? Like, oh, time kills all deals. You got to get the deal done in 90 days, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know what? Time kills all deals, but time also builds trust. And so there may be some times when you trade a little bit of calendar for a lot of trust. And, I think there's a um, balance. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Right. Like, and, and so you can go through the deals. It's got to be, everybody has to feel either... <laughs> What, you come to an agreement when both parties feel equally cheated out, right? Like, so like you feel equally frustrated by the final price, right? I feel like I'm getting, I'm paying too much. You feel like you're getting too little. Okay. We're probably in the right place. I kind of, you've been there and you've got a lot more experience than me. I kind of have this mindset where it's rapport within 21 days, meaning we've had a couple of calls. I've got rapport. We're starting to trust each other. Mm -hmm. LOI within 30 to 45 days, right? I'm showing you that I am interested. We're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, due diligence or agreement within 45, 60 days, shortly after that. I've never seen anybody really look at an LOI for weeks, right? If you've got the rapport there, they know already whether or not they want to work with you. And then closing that, I still think you can get the deal done in 90 days, but if you, it, it's not, it's not in 12 days. If you don't have the rapport there, if you don't say, okay, the first three, four weeks, I'll, I'm not even going to look at his numbers, right? I might, if he offers them to me, like, Hey, what do you need next? I was like, might say at some point I'm going to ask for X, Y, Z, but right now I just got to get, I got to know, I like what you built. I got to know, I like who you've employed that yeah. I like the culture yeah. you've built. And that and I will continue to do what you want. And I, I want to know that I want to be on, I'm on the path that you want this to be on, because right. at the end of the day, you're not going to sell this to me. You might say you right. will now, you may think it's all about money, but at the end of the day, you're not closing this deal. If you think I'm going to harm your brand, your legacy, or your people. Totally, right? bro. That's exactly right. The legacy piece of this is so important. People forget that, especially when you're, when you, I mean, if it's a guy who, a guy or gal who bought a company five years ago and they're flipping it or something like that, that's a different game, right? But, yep. but if you're, but if you're talking to a founder, you're talking to somebody who started this company in 1987 or whatever, and they're, they have tons of blood, sweat, and tears in the business, or as Jeremy Harbour would say, blood, sweat, and years. Yeah. Uh, and so it's real. And what they're worried about is, Hey, you know, what's not only what's my next step as a human, but what's going to happen to this company and where's it going from here? And so there's a, there's a lot of worry on their part as to what the, what their legacy is and how are their employees being taken care of and how, what are you going to do with this? I don't want to drive by here and see that it's been torn down or that you change this or change that or rebranded or whatever. And so there's a lot of that piece. And it's, and I just think that the, the psychology, all the mechanics of a deal, those are taught by name, name a person. They're all over the place. You can learn them on the internet. You can learn them in B school. You can learn them, whatever. There's, the mechanics are pretty simple, 
but the psychology is a completely different game and it requires some finesse. And I'm not saying be duplicitous. I'm not saying be disingenuous. I'm saying you have to come at it from the right place in your heart and really care about how this gets presented and what that legacy looks like. And I've used the term dozens of times, hey, I really just want to honor the legacy that you've built. And that's going to be part of our brand going forward. And it may not be the same way you expect it to go, and that may not be your exact plan that you have, but it's going to it's going to honor what you've built and have your name associated with it, and it's going to be part of our story. So-and-so built this company. I was privileged enough to pick it up in this year, and going forward, it looked like this. Yeah, I get that. And at some point, do you ever bring up, and I don't know, I, I don't know where to put this in. At some point, I kind of need to know, for their own sanity, what are you going to do when you get this fat check, right? And yeah, right. I don't ever word it that way, right? Because um, a lot of times people don't realize, like, look, you're gonna, you're about to receive probably the largest sum of cash you've ever received in your life, and and once well in one fell swoop, and or in payments or whatever, however the deal is structured. Who do you have on your team that's going to help you mm-hmm. switch from business owner to somebody who can maintain, grow, and and manage wealth? To fund that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. It's yeah. A- I mean, it's, it's, that's a terrific question. And I think the other part of that, and there's a little wrinkle to that I'll add is that not only do you want them to, do you want to make sure that you understand how they're going to navigate that? But I always tell people like the minute that you can get them to tell you what the plan is with that money, boom, they've mentally spent it. Oh yeah. Like, so emotionally they've gotten to that place. There's a lot about visual, visualization. There's a lot of brain science there mm-hmm. that, that gets them to the emotional place that they've actually gotten that check and they've done something with it. Like, well, I'm going to buy a house on the coast and I'm going to do X. Okay, great. Like you, that's going to be, there's going to be more than enough there, but now I know as a buyer, okay, well, he's going to buy a house in, in Naples. That's going to be a million bucks. So he needs at least a million bucks up front. Okay. Right. I know what that like. So you kind of, that, that helps you size it a little bit for yourself. And you know, that's part of the process, but it also has put him in a place where he knows, yeah, I saw that house when I was down there last time. I really, that's the one or whatever. And so emotionally they've gotten themselves there as to what that transition looks like. It helps both sides of the deal, right? I think it's pretty important. It's funny is you say a million bucks in Naples and I'm looking around, I live in Northern California <laughs> in a very resort type of area and I'm looking for land and houses and I haven't seen anything I'm really interested in that's less than 2.5. It's yeah, crazy yeah. here. I'm probably off now, whatever. A million might, might not get you anywhere. I live in St. Louis. We don't have a million dollar houses. They're like, oof, they're like unicorns. It's <laughs> funny is, is that exactly, I came from, I moved here from Tulsa, Oklahoma and like right. selling some of the real estate we own there. And I'm going to have to sell five or six of them for a decent down payment over here. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> pull money from places that is stuff I don't want to pull. So, right. and yeah, it's every market's different. It's beautiful here. I love it. But uh, understanding what that guy's goals and objectives are, right, and what their concerns are, right. He's like, because you'll hear him. It's like, you know, what the, I asked one guy, I said, like, look, we pull an SBA loan on this is a three and a half million dollar purchase. You're going to get a three. You're going to have some fees, so you're going to get a three million dollar check. Mm-hmm. What are you going to? How is that going to impact you? He goes, I don't know. The taxes are going to be like half of it, right? I said, have you talked to a tax consultant? Like, totally. hey, I'm selling my business for three, $3.5 million. I'm sure there's some fees and stuff, but I'm going to get $3.1 or $3.2 million in, in, yeah. in a check and a wire transfer to my account. To my <laughs> yeah, account. Right. Right. What is the IRS going to think about that? You know, right. And what can we do? A lot of times there's 
just showing that you care about that side of things. And a lot of times I, you know, I think I haven't got all the way through that process of the bigger ones, but I think even reaching out and they're like, if they don't know somebody kind of start, you starting to do some of that research for them. Hey, there's four or five sure. people here that I think that would, I looked, I Googled it. I'm really good on the computer, man. Here's five people in your market that would probably be qualified. Right. to give you that right. type of advice. Totally. I don't know totally. any of them from Adam, but here's five people to call and to see who you connect started. with. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. I mean, as, as a matter of fact, I just saw something yesterday on an interesting deal structure on the seller side where the seller, instead of receiving the check, the insurance, an insurance company receives the check and then creates a, an annuity and it basically buys an annuity and that annuity gets paid out over X number of years. And now they don't have to manage the money. They have a guaranteed annuity payment every year. And it also stretches out their tax liability and probably reduces it depending on what their marginal tax rate is and capital gains and all the other stuff. But it was, I thought it was a really fascinating study on how to mitigate some of that tax liability in, the, in doing a deal on the seller side. And, uh, and so, yeah, any of those tax strategies, again, this is a, most of these people are ladies and gentlemen who have created companies and know how to make stuff and know how to sell stuff. They don't know how to manage funds. They don't know how to reduce their tax liability. They don't know how to sell a company. That's not the business they're in. They're in the widget selling company business or they're in the professional services business or whatever they're in. They're not in the business selling business. A lot of times business owners, the other thing they don't get is like, they've been paying themselves a salary of like especially the smaller ones, seller's discretionary earnings, right? Of a small company. They've been paying themselves, I just make the math easy, $100,000 of seller's discretionary earnings, plus some perks, cars, stuff like that. So let's just call it 150, right? They might be getting 4X. What they don't realize is they've got 4X, so they've got money to make it for four years. 4X might sound pretty impressive as a lump sum check, but after the tax man takes his piece, if you're used to living on and actually have a spending requirement, you have a lifestyle that requires that $150,000 worth of income, what mm-hmm. are you going to do two and a half years from now when you've used up all the money? Ron, that's a great point. One of the things that I always coach people to do is is when sometimes you get into that place where you're negotiating, you get to a price and you get to, how's that price going to be paid out? It's going to be one loan sum, SBA loan can only be X amount and whatever. And for instance, we had a big portion of seller debt in that, in the machine shop deal. And the way we structured it was, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do a 10 year note. The, and it's going to be paid out on a monthly basis, but I ended up laying out the cash flows, the monthly cash flows, just to show them like an amortization chart of, Hey, this is what it's going to look like in your pocket. We're going to stroke a check on the first day of every month. That's going to look like this for the next mm-hmm. 120 months. And to me, that helps people get their brain around like, oh, I can live on some fantastic amount of money a month, 50 grand a month or whatever the thing is. Right. And they they go, they look at what they're making now. They look at, okay, how does that compare? Okay. Yeah, I can do that. And I can peel off part of that and put it in savings or put it in, I put it, I want to get a bullet payment at the beginning and then the rest of it's going to be over the course of time. So I think there's, there's value to creating that series of cash flows to really put it into hard terms. Hey, seller, this is what it's going to look like for you. You're going to get a check from me every month for the foreseeable future. That's going to look like this big. And they go, oh, okay, that makes sense. So that helps. We've got a 
we only have a few minutes left here. Let's jump right into it. I love this little phrase you put here, the dog catches the car, right? I, I get the visual. Yeah, right. I lived out in the country and we used to have these way out in the country when we were in Oklahoma. I'm still kind of out in the country. I'm, I joke around and it's like, it's a 15 mile drive, 17 mile drive around here to get a Taco Bell. Like, I mean, oh I, I live, I live remote. I live in the Redwood forest of Northern California. There's Redwoods in our front yard. Beautiful. But if you think, I used to think about like the drive back to our house, there was these four dogs and every single day they would wait <laughs> by the side of the road. Right. Yeah. And then they would chase you. It's like one of these days and every once in a while you'd see a, what would be two dogs. And then another, they'd have a younger dog that somehow they would replace a dog. But so I was like, and my, my son asked one day, I said, why is there only two dogs now? I said, one of them caught a car. One of them caught. Yeah. One of them yeah. won the race. Yeah. Uh, one so, of, one, yeah. I use that term because I think sometimes people get so caught up in the chase and so caught up in the deal that it's okay. Now what? The dog catches car. Like now what do I do? So there's certainly the LOI to closing time frame, right? There's stuff that has to get done and there's boxes to check and all the things that you have to do in that process, get your financing and get your due diligence and all the things that you want to do and get the purchase agreement signed and all that stuff. But then there's a day when you take transition, when you're now transitioning, now you're the business owner. But now what? Okay. I kind of, having done it a few times and being exposed to a lot of business owners, I do, I personally do one-on-one -on -one business coaching with people and helping them create an operating system for their business, right? So I find it super important to bring, you need to have kind of three pieces to that, that business operating system. You need to have a strategic plan of some sort. You can use EOS, you can use Fern Harness, you can use, there's tons of different places you can get strategic plans from. Have to have some sort of strategic plan that tells me what's the roadmap, where am I going? Right. You need to create some kind of battle rhythm, right? You have to have, if you think back to your military years, some sort of battle rhythm where you have regular check-ins, regular meetings, full meetings on a weekly basis, you go through and you have very structured meeting process. And it's not like when we bought the salons, I had to laugh because the, we asked about meeting rhythm in that business and they're like, oh yeah, we have a weekly meeting. It probably only happens once or twice a month, but yeah, we have a weekly meeting. I'm uh, like, that's not really a weekly meeting. So the second piece of it is a regular battle rhythm, meeting rhythm that you can put in place. And then the third thing is scoreboard, because guess what? Your team needs to know what winning looks like, right? If you drop me into the middle of a cricket match, I probably won't know what's going on, but if I saw a scoreboard, I could probably figure it out. And right. so I would argue that most of your employees don't know what's going on, but they have some semblance of a scoreboard somewhere, you know, whether it's the, in the machine shop business, when we bought it and they had clipboards up on the wall of all the orders. Every order was on a different clipboard. So they could see, oh, there's three rows of clipboards. That means we have a lot of work to do. That's a good thing. That was their scoreboard. In my eyes, if you made, you could change that scoreboard a little bit by making the really big orders on a big butcher block piece of paper and the really one piece orders and on a post-it note, right? Now I, now I have, not only do I know that there's a bunch of orders, but I also know the size and scale of each of them. So some way, the three pieces, you plan of some sort, a battle rhythm of some sort and some sort of scoreboards that help people understand what winning looks like. Those are the things that I think are really important in running that business. And that helps you keep your finger on the pulse. I'll also say that on the first 60 days of owning a business, my hands get tired because I sit on them the entire time. I just try and watch, learn, listen. What you want to do in the first 60 to 90 days is make sure the plumbing works, right? That the money coming into your company is hitting the right bank accounts, that your employees are getting paid, that your invoices are going out to the right customers with the right names on them, that the stuff that you ordered is showing up 
the stuff that you make is going out the door, whatever your business is, that just the plumbing works in the first 60 to 90 days. After that, it becomes a, a challenge to, now I've got to create some sort of way to uh, stabilize the company. Now I need to create a sustainable company for the next 10, 15, 25 years, whatever that time frame is. And then that piece is more of the, okay, what are the big things we need to do to make sure that we're going to be around here for 10 years, 20 years? And that you can learn those things during the stabilization period, but you don't want to execute on any of those until after 90 days and you've watched how things have gone. I'm actually looking around in the EOS system. I'm a visionary, yeah. very high, very high. And I'm looking for a yeah. really good integrator. I'm, I, I joke around. I tell people I'm unicorn, I'm unicorn hunting. I'm looking for a very <laughs> unique individual. I want him to be an EOS integrator or at least score high yeah. on the integration side as my operator. And I want Tim to be a reader because there's a lot of stuff I wanted to make sure there's a book out there. I'd like to, I'd like to see what happens. And it's kind of an experimental thing. And when we combine, if you know who Jack Stack is with the great, uh, great game of business, right? Where I, everything's I've, open. I've actually done some, I've done some coaching for Jack. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Jack, yeah Jack's, a, That's, Jack's a spring Springfield, Missouri guy. So right there. Oh, cool. I'd love to have yeah. him on the show someday. Um, oh, he's wonderful. Yeah. But my goal would be to have an integrator, somebody like that can follow EOS system, right? And then play with that. I'm going to reread and re-listen to Jack's. Great game of business. The book great is great a great game of business. business. It is a yeah. wonderful book. It's just, a, it's just a really intriguing story about how to make sure that the critical number in your company is shared with everybody. And it goes back to that conversation about that meeting rhythm, that, mm -hmm. that scoreboarding, all those things to make sure that everybody is on the same page. And yeah, Jack does it like no other. If you want to find a, a great human being who, who wants to ties wealth for the world, Jack Stack is your man. He is, he's a terrific guy. I think it's something that EOS is missing a little bit. If, they, if you had a hybrid model, you wanted to create, like you're a coach, man. If you wanted to create your own EOS qualified business, I would say hybrid the EOS, the systematic and everything, and put yep. the great game of business openness in it, right? Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. Uh, I. I really like that model. It's funny as I'm, I'm just now remodeling our whole media company, the podcast and everything and uh -huh. the, uh, including the VAs over in the Philippines and everybody that works for me, there's actually, as this thing starts to generate revenue, there's a 20% revenue profit share that goes back and oh, it gets the, dividend back. So everybody's incentivized to make this grow, to make it successful, to bring up ideas. They've all got skin in the game and the accounting's open on it. Basically my yeah. VA, it's read only, but my VAs can see the numbers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, my, my argument is always that your employees are always going to act in their own self-interest. Make this and part. That's what I did. Make this part of their self-interest. <laughs> right. Unless, unless or until you make the company's interest, their self-interest, yep. they're going to do their own thing. I mean, they're, they're, it's not to say that they're going to do anything bad or, or untoward. What they're going to do is they're going to do what's good for them. Yep. And if you can build a system that allows them to both work in the company's best interest and their own at the same time, holy cow. Now you've, and you're sharing numbers, it builds trust. It's all that stuff we talked about, even with the seller conversation, but it also permeates uh, you as a leader. And as a leader, you're building rapport with your team. You're building trust with your team. And some, those are some of the best ways to do it. I think that there's a huge opportunity out there to do, I don't I even, I'm just now getting to the point where when employee stock option programs are selling the company back, the exits of selling the company back to the employees. Mm. I've got a guy coming on here. That's the CEO of a company that specializes in that here in the next few yeah. weeks and lined up the interview. My question yeah. to him is going to be, can I sell 75% back to the employees sure. and maintain? Yeah. So if you could, that's my long-term goal for building generational wealth is to buy companies 
uh, gets them running well, use EOS and the great game of business, his model, open books and stuff, do an ESOP, basically sell it 75% of it back to employees and then take a dividend on the ownership. And right. I mean, and, and, and then ultimately you have an exit plan too, where you get to a place where you want to walk away, the ESOP mm-hmm. buys your section and, or the remainder and yep. nice Off, I mean, offer it to employees and let them buy the last 25% out and you're done. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, that's it, my, that's exactly right. And if you ever get a chance, you and I need to meet up at the great game of business, their gathering, their conference every year, they do it in September. You'll get blown away. I can introduce you to the right people at those things. I mean, holy cow, these guys are that, that may be interesting. I promised the wife, I wouldn't travel a little bit. I told you I did a two-year program. We yeah. traveled constantly during that. I did a two-year leadership program and every single quarter we flew to a different destination in the United oh, States. Wow. So we were gone for four or five days at the end of every quarter and we would meet in a room and talk about the projects we were building and the teams we had in play. And then I was constantly traveling for like short projects too. For the first year, it was like I was in Dallas all the time. And it came to the point where we bought this tiny home we were living in. And my wife's like, look, you're gone all the time. You didn't want to do that to your kids. I don't want to do that to kids. I'd rather have a different job anyway. Do you mind if we buy one of those tiny houses you see on TV and just move down to Dallas to where when you come home in in the evenings, you can come home here and you're not exhausted. So we grabbed one of these and the funny thing is that was three or four years ago and we're still living in it because we actually like this life. We, everybody says, how do you live in a tiny home? I was like, we kind of don't. We eat here. We sleep here. I run my podcast from it. You can see the stairs in the background. But most of the time we're out. My kids will get off school in about an hour here. And if they want to go to the beach or the coast, we'll grab up and go. Or if they want to go. And we'll go outside and do stuff. We'll take them to the park. There's a skate park park nearby. We'll grab the scooters and the skates and all that stuff. And we'll just go do things. So we're never really here other than to sleep and eat. Next year, I'll probably be in that travel mode. All right. Yeah. At some point, we'll get you out there. And and I'll tell you too, if you ever want to interview Steve Baker, he's kind of their mouthpiece for for a great game. He would be a great interview for you. Yeah. Long as we can stay on the topic of buying, selling, and growing businesses, I'd love to, absolutely love yeah. to. And yeah. I'm a big fan yeah. of his book. I'll re-listen to it before because it's been a while since I listened to it. Yeah. But I'll re-listen to it right before the show. But yeah, yeah if you want to do that, would be great. Let's make sure everybody knows how to reach out to you. So sure. if you guys, what was what's the best way if somebody wants to work with you, has some questions of you, just wants to get to know you and make sure you're the right fit for what they need, how do yeah. people reach out to you? Well, thanks for that. Like I said, I do business coaching one-on-one with uh, folks. I do work in a with a group that does cohort coaching of, of groups together, mm-hmm. a company called The Lions Pride. That's thelionspride.com. I'm a coach for them. Some of those folks, like I said, work with me one-on-one. Some of them work in cohort. I'm also open to, to consulting on the acquisition side. Easiest way to get a hold of me is my email is just the Gmail address, which is Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y dot N as in November dot Evenson at gmail.com. And my cell, you can put that in the email or whatever is 314-221-0305. Happy to meet up with people, learn more about what their journey is and see if there's a way to work together. I, like I said, my quest is to help other people build generational wealth. 90% of the ultra wealthy in the United States, the people who have $5 million or more of personal wealth are business owners. That opportunity exists for virtually everybody. I don't have the billion dollar idea of, you know, Facebook or Twitter or any of those things. So it, it makes more sense to me to go buy something that already works and, uh, and turn around and grow it and then sell it at some point, whether I run it for the rest of my life, or I just choose to, to sell it after a few years, that's th- those transactions, those capital transactions is when you start to build 
build wealth for your for you and your family. Love to talk to your folks. I really honored to be part of your part of your podcast, Ron. I, I've watched it a number of times. I've seen some of my heroes on the podcast and I'm a little humbled and then probably there's a little imposter syndrome going on right now about why I belong in this call with you, but I really appreciate you taking the time. I've had a great time talking with you and I don't think there's any imposter syndrome there. You've been there, you've done it, you walk the walk, you talk the talk. And I do a little bit of vetting before I put people on here. So there's, I've certainly told a handful or more people like, nah. <laughs> so yeah, right. uh, yeah, well, I yeah. appreciate that. So just, just know that if you're on here, it's because you belong on here. If I thought you didn't belong on here, I, I would make sure you didn't. So let's call that a show and hang out for Thanks a few that. seconds afterwards. All right. Sounds great. Awesome. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now